So uh, welcome to our final night. From here forward, you, you need to, you know, was that, what kind of a yay was that? <laughs> I hope you felt you got your money's worth. I hope the tuition was worth it. And uh, you, probably haven't been, you probably haven't received your tuition invoices yet, so. But uh, thanks for coming, and I hope it's been helpful. I've, I've enjoyed researching it. It's, it's been a lot, of, uh, a lot of reading in that, but... Um, there's a lot of, certainly a lot of material, right? Uh, thank you. Thank you. Maybe you, maybe you should reserve judgment for tonight. Might blow it tonight and you know, <laughs> save the worst for last. <laughs> so what we're going to do tonight is um, we're going to look at the tail end of the Ottoman Empire. And then we're going to look at what's called the period of the British Mandate, which is about 30 years, three three decades. And then we'll look at Israel from 1948 onward, which is where we started. If you remember the first class, we actually started looking at modern Israel. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on like modernism the last two, two decades, but we will touch down on how Israel has flourished and prospered and some of its unique challenges and some of its major wars since 1948. Okay, I can remember 48 the number 1948 sticks in my head because my parents were both born that year. So that's the key date for uh, for that. Are you all f- feeling old or young? Yeah. <laughs> you were one. Yeah, and I, would, I think I was one when you were married, right, Jack? Did you, did you say 72 or 74? Okay, yes, I was one. Who here remembers 1973? remembers it. That was alive. Was it a good year? It was a good year? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a major event that year. I was born, but you probably didn't hear about it. All right. So um, to bring us up to speed then, as by way of review, what is the Ottoman Empire? And don't say it's the empire that came up with the little footstools, okay? But what, what's the Ottoman Empire? It was a large one, yep. Tell me about its location. Lower, like Asia. Technically, it would be considered, uh, I guess, Western Asia, not over into China and that. Down through Palestine into Egypt kind of across northern Africa, so kind of all around the Mediterranean. What was the major ethnic group in the Ottoman Empire? The Turks. And this was pre the country of Turkey, right? So Turkey was forged after uh, the war in order to house, for lack of a better term, the Turkish people. But prior to that, they would have been considered Ottomans. So the Ottoman Empire was the dominant world empire for how long? How many centuries approximately? Yeah, about four to five hundred years, right? Is the Ottoman Empire. So as with every other empire that we've looked at, they enter into a period of demise. Happened to... The Sumerians happened to the Akkadians, happened to the um, 
Egyptians several times, happened to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Israel under Solomon, that was sort of the height of their glory. And um, the Romans, or the Greeks, we should say, uh, Persians are in there, the Greeks, the Romans. And then we talked about the Ottoman Empire last time. So where we left was, where we left off last week is in the middle 1800s, in and around 1840s, 1850s. And what happened was a um, ruler in Egypt decided he was going to muscle his way up in and more or less rule Palestine. So he um, he is living, or he's he's living in Egypt. He's an Egyptian ruler. His name is Muhammad Ali, not to be mistaken for the boxer. And he takes control of Palestine and Syria up until about 1841. So this is just prior to the Civil War in uh, in the U.S. But he has to return those land pieces to the Ottoman Empire because the Europeans forced him to. Basically, the European states didn't like the fact that the Ottomans were being dissed by this Egyptian. And you all know that this was sort of part of the, a period of time which was the height or part of the height of Britain's glorious years as a colonial empire. So they eventually strong-arm him into uh, releasing the land back to the Ottomans. But during Ali's rule, several things were taking place in and around Palestine. So for those that may be joining us uh, for the first or second time, this is a rough outline of the Mediterranean. So this is the Mediterranean Sea. Down here we have Egypt. Over here we have the Red Sea. This is now joined by the Suez Canal, S-U-E-Z. And basically from here up is the modern state of Israel. This area across here, this land area, including Palestine, was known as the Fertile Crescent. Now in the Fertile Crescent, this area was called Palestine and north of it, spilling into the Fertile Crescent was called Syria. Okay, so we have Syria and we have Palestine. Where does this word come from? Philistine. It was a word adopted by the Romans for the province, Palestina. Over here we have what we call Asia Minor. So, all up through here in the 1800s, the dominant people group, not empire, not nation, the dominant people group were the Bedouins. Now the Bedouins were a nomadic group, or I should say still are, a nomadic group of people of um, Arab stock that migrated up out of what we call Saudi Arabia nowadays into this area. And they basically were kind of guerrillas. They were waging war on their fellow Muslims, on Jews, basically on anybody that got in their way, and basically disrupting the whole region. And this was an ongoing problem that Muhammad Ali 
had to address even under his, uh, his rule. So it made this area very difficult for him to govern. And uh, different factions in the villages, even in Israel, were fighting among each other because some of them had sizable Bedouin populations. So in, um, in, the, in the 1830s, the British consul who was in Jerusalem, basically sort of the equivalent of like a, an ambassador, Israel, Britain had a lot of trade in Palestine at the time, connected down into Egypt. So they had a consul located in Israel. He even recorded in one of his, his documents, which is now a historical document, that the, all the villages around Jerusalem were constantly fighting and warring, and there was bloodshed and feuds because of these different disruptions caused by the Bedouin peoples. So you think just, really, just a couple hundred years ago, less than that, that's what the scene was like in, uh, in what we now call Israel. So the Egyptians decide, well, maybe we can solve this by upping the population of Egyptians. So they take uh, a group known as the Fellahins. So just think of the word Fella, F-E-L-L-A, and then add H-I-N-S. And they start bringing these, this Egyptian people group up into Palestine and settling them there, hoping they can sort of drown out the Bedouins or at least increase the population of Egyptians to the point that they're able to control the country a little bit better. They also force conscription for military service upon the population. Fellahins and uh, Bedouins and presumably Jews and Arabs and whoever happened to be living there at the time, Greeks. Uh, well, the inhabitants detest this, and if you can believe this or not, uh, at one point in time, uh, this is, again, mid-1800s. In order to avoid conscription, many of the Palestinian men of different ethnic groups gouge out their one eye because they felt that would disqualify them for military service. So what Ali does is he forms a brigade of one-eyed soldiers. <laughs> Believe it or not, it was an actual standing regiment of one-eyed soldiers. So he basically taught them a lesson, you're not going to get around conscription. So these one-eyed soldiers have to go and uh, fight. And of course, there were other forms of self-mutilation, uh, self maybe more or less than gouging out the eye that people tried. So the, basically, um, uh, his son then is a fellow by the name of uh, uh, Abra Abraham Pasha, P-A-S-H-A, and he's actually the one that forms the military brigade of one-eyed soldiers. And he tries to sort of rule under his father uh, as his father's representative in that area. But um, there's these uprisings. So at one point, there's an uprising. The Bedouins and the native peoples take a bunch of cities, including Jerusalem. So he has to bring up some Egyptian forces. And ultimately, the, uh, the insurgents are defeated. So from a military perspective, even though it's difficult for the Egyptian ruler to maintain control of Palestine, he, he, he does so, more or less. So how is it that it, Egypt was eventually evicted? Not because of their own uh, weaknesses, but essentially because of politics. So what happened was, uh, at this time, Russia was a rising strength in the east of Europe. And um, France 
had been defeated. Their ruler at the time was Napoleon III. He'd been defeated in battle, I think, against uh, Russia. Could be wrong on that, but I think it was against Russia. So Russia's a rising force, and the British, who have interests in the Mediterranean area, decide, well, you know, our, we can't do this ourselves, so we got to keep the Ottomans strong because the Ottomans, you know, are in this area, sort of blocking theoretically an invasion from Russia. So they want the Ottoman Empire to be relatively strong, not as strong as them. So they basically put pressure on Ali to give Syria back to the Ottomans, and he says no. So they uh, actually form a coalition of Russians, Prussians, English, and Austrians. They send their naval brigades into uh, the Mediterranean and bombard the shores of a few different key Syrian towns until Ali capitulates and returns to Egypt. And the Ottomans are given Syria and Palestine back. Now, the Ottomans then uh, start paying more attention to Palestine. Okay, this has been given back to us by these nations that are more powerful than us, so this must mean it's significant, right? Think about it. So what they do is they start to pay more attention, try to govern better, try to sort of up their game. Instead of just treating Palestine as some outback province, they're now paying a little more attention to it and realizing you know, this is kind of a significant slice of land. In terms of the, the, the state of the land itself, it had been in steep decline for probably well over 100 years. So a lot of, it, a lot of the uh, land that historically had been farmed basically turned into swamp. Um, it, it wasn't kept up, but it belonged to them. So they wanted to sort of maintain control over it. And this is a key point when the Jews move in some uh, a few few decades later the place was basically from like an agricultural perspective a disaster zone just swamped out animals killed off deforested just really not the kind of place you'd want to you know take your bride on your honeymoon so uh you're under the ottomans then back under the ottomans which are more or less puppet rulers now of palestine because they're still under the influence of Germany and England in particular, various European countries start to sort of say, you know, maybe we should build up a little bit of a presence there. And the way they build up the presence there is largely through religious connections. So at this point, the Eastern Orthodox Church, which historically has been called the Greek Eastern Orthodox Church, it didn't belong to Russia. Russia becomes the dominant country championing the interests of the Orthodox Church in the world. So you you know this today, that there's a huge Orthodox presence in Russia. Historically, way, way, way back, there wasn't. But they sort of take don the mantle of the defenders of the Orthodox faith. So they then identify different holy sites, and they want to maintain all the Greek Orthodox presence in the Holy Land, right? And... Other groups, of course, would want to move their uh, people in or their bishops in to organize uh, and defend the sites that were important to them, the Protestants and the Catholics and so forth and so on. And therefore, uh, at one point, there's a, a real heavy European presence in Palestine. 
This is in the 1800s. Now, Russia starts to flex its muscles, and you know they say what goes around comes around. Russia uh, invades Crimea. Sound familiar? And um, several Europeans push them out. This is why Putin wants it back, because he considers it historic Russian territory. So they are pushed back. So now Russia is sort of licking its wounds. The Western European nations have sort of shown themselves to be the dominating force. And this, this has increased. So think of it this way. Britain has a presence. Germany has a presence. The question is, who's really going to control this area? Palace, the Ottomans are more or less puppets. Russia has been whooped, at least humiliated, certainly not defeated as a nation. 1869, this canal opens up after 10 years of labor, the Suez Canal, linking the Mediterranean to the Red Sea, over what is 169 kilometers long. I think it's up to 180 because they have, they've changed it a little bit. Very important uh, that these two bodies, otherwise you got to go all the way around Africa and up. This is a quick little jaunt. Now when this first opens up, being that it's in Israel, the dominant shareholders of the property are Egyptians. But Egypt starts to flounder economically. And so the dominant shareholder essentially goes bankrupt. Britain comes in, scoops up the shares. So now Britain has the predominant lion's share control over uh, you know, one of the most significant trade routes in the area. Uh, so Britain buys it due to the economic troubles of the area. And England increasingly, or we should, we should actually be more accurate and say Britain, Britain fills much of the political vacuum in the Middle East as the other European powers, not all of them, Germany is actually rising, as the other European powers start to sort of wobble a little bit. Now, during this period of time, Germany is actually increasing in strength in Europe. And uh, you probably all know about, uh, what was it, Frederick the Great, the emperor of Germany. He is successful in the 19th century, I believe it was, in standardizing German. So there's, you think of German today as one set national language but historically german was like i don't know dozens or maybe even hundreds of dialects so my wife's you all know my wife's historical background is is uh, mennonite and the mennonites fled from germany to uh prussia after the Pro protestant reformation maintained a german dialect so my wife spoke uh uh, learned German before she learned English, but it doesn't sound like the German from Germany. So you say, oh, you speak German. You try to, if you try your standard German on her, she goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. So what Frederick the Great did is he basically brought Germany together under one standardized German dialect, which we just call German today. But it's actually just one of historically many. So this sort of brings these, these G Germanic people groups together. They're rising up at the end of the 19th century. And because they're powerful, the Ottomans become increasingly subservient to the wishes of the Germans. 
and German settlements begin to appear in Palestine. Whole towns are speaking German in Palestine. And you never find that today, but 150 years ago or so that was the case. Now what happens is come, turning the corner into the 1900s, we have this little incident called World War I. And the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, commit political suicide by siding with the Germans. So Turk, what, the, 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 the Ottomans, not yet known as Turkey, the Ottomans side with the Germans the Germans send military officers and they sort of trade back and forth to sort of build their army. They are now, the Germans are now in Palestine occupying it and now they're occupying it from a military perspective. So there's actually, during World War I, a German-Turkish army stationed in Israel, Palestine. Well, the British defeat the Germans ultimately in World War One, along with the Allies. And in December of 1917, the British troops also defeat a German-Turkish army near Jerusalem. So end of World War One, there's essentially a dissolution of the Ottoman Empire because they did the wrong thing and sided with the Germans, and the Germans lost, and those are sort of their big brothers, so they fall fat, flat on their uh, faces. And that's the end of the Ottoman Empire coming into the 1900s. Essentially because they made the wrong move and sided with the Germans for World War I. So moving forward then, Palestine is ruled for the next 30 years. It doesn't become its own country. You know, because you've been following our course of study, that it actually hasn't been a country for how long? 1900 years, give or take, maybe more depending on, uh, you know, if you look at the whether the Hasmoneans really created a country or not, let's say they did, leading up to the time of Christ. So from the time it was called Judea, more or less from the time of Christ to 1948, it wasn't a country. It was a province or it was a territory of or it was a district of some other ruling nation at the time, Rome or the Arabs or the Crusaders, back and forth, right? We've talked all about that. So with the British rule now, it still doesn't become a country. It's called the British Mandate, M-A-N-D-A-T-E. And it remains as the British Mandate for the next 30 years. So now we're going to move into a section discussing some of the uh, elements of the British Mandate. So the British Mandate, as I mentioned, begins with uh, Palestine, the territory of Palestine being taken from the Germans and Turks in World War I. British troops walk in, come up to the gates of Jerusalem, the old city, get off their horses to show respect, march through the city, chase out any uh, stragglers that were uh, you know, conspirators with the Germans or Turks, and they now have a military presence. They've already had a political presence there for probably more than 100 years. And this is their opportunity to, to control. Now, um, 
it's more of a modern form of government. So they don't they don't go in and start like slaughtering people and tearing down walls and busting up mosques and busting up synagogues and you know the kind of stuff that we've read about in more historical uh, invasions. They basically seek to govern the British mandate under what would be considered at the time modern political means. So you you know you set up a tax base that's fair for all. You the the colonial people talk against colonialism. Oh, colonialism! I don't want to colonialize the world. Well, um, you know, as much as freedom lovers, of course, don't really appreciate the idea of another nation invading them. Britain did bring a high level of civilization to the colonies that they invaded. You know, eventually lost control of, including our own. Right. So the uh, you know our our uh, the great dominion of Canada, whether you're you know pro Queen Elizabeth or not, we have benefited greatly from the structure, the administration of his, the historic British Empire. In terms of our founding and the way we were sort of uh, constituted. Now, just stepping back several decades, we've got to kind of overlap some of our trains of thought here. So now you got to go back a little bit to in and around 1870. In eight, in and around 1870 is when Jews had already begun to return in large groups to Palestine, even under the Ottomans. People sometimes have this idea that like no Jews were living in Palestine, and in 1948 they all showed up at the doorsteps with their suitcases. There had always been a remnant of Jews living in Palestine. There were several centuries where they were not living in Jerusalem because they weren't allowed. But there's always been a remnant of Jews living in Palestine since the time of Christ and before. And at different times, the population has dropped right down. Other times, it's sort of brought up. So in, in 1870, uh, Jews start returning. They start setting up agricultural settlements. And it, it must have looked kind of funny because I know in my neighborhood, sometimes we have people from other countries move in and they've, they've grown up in countries where there's no grass. And so you see them out front sort of staring at their brand new lawnmower and they just they don't know how to start it. They don't know how to use it. And you sort of get a chuckle out of that. Well, it probably looked very similar because most of the, the, the Jews that moved into Palestine in the 1870s took up farming, but they weren't farmers. They were uh, merchants uh, and uh, kind of upper class people from Europe. So they're out there trying to figure out, like, how do we farm? I don't know how to do this. Like, how do you, you know, hook up a plow to a, to a, a horse? But nevertheless, they were, they were quite successful in the 1870s and after, uh, basically getting the, 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 the nation, the, the land back into um, good agricultural shape. Um, if you ever want to read a good book on the history of the, the Jews in Israel from that period onward, I would really recommend The Dawn of the Promised Land. Now, I just signed this out from the library again, and then I never had a chance to read it. But I used to have my own copy, and somebody out there borrowed it and never gave it back. So they're going to have to answer to the Lord for that. But um, I have read it in its entirety several years ago, and I just found it like it was a, just a very easy to read, just a very interesting history of land in uh, of the, that period of time. So it's written by Ben Wicks. It's a Stoddard Press publication, Dawn of the Promised Land. I just got this from the Windsor Library. So I, I would encourage you to get that if you're interested in this period of time. Uh, 
they begin then to reclaim derelict, derelict lands. And folks, because of this, if you read Wicks's book, as I recall, he argues that for the most part, in the late 1800s, the Arabs and the Jews got along. They, you know, sh- whatever, sharing plows, sharing implements, they were neighbors. There wasn't like feuding and fight. What are they going to feud and fight over? They're, they're all under the Ottomans. They're, the, the lands that the Jews were taking, they weren't kicking anybody out. They were taking over swamps and areas that had sort of been left fallow for, for generations. But cracks in the friendship start to appear. The later part of the, the, the 1800s, especially the 1880s. So in the 1880s, you may have heard of this guy, Baron Edmund de Rothschild. Edmund de Rothschild. I don't know if that rings a bell. I mean, the name kind of sounds ritzy because it is. He's a European Jew, and he purchases 100, over the course of a period of time, I don't know how long it took him, he purchases purchases 100, legally purchases 125,000 acres of land for Jews to settle in and on in Palestine. So he finances it, essentially. So he's basically buying land. You, you know, you guys want to go down there and settle, I'll buy it for you. The Jews, of course, had experienced anti-Semitism in Europe for generations. And uh, even in the 18, uh, you know, late 1800s, countries like England and Germany and France weren't, weren't real nice to the Jews. They didn't treat them very well. So there was this growing sense that maybe we got to get our own land again. And this was the beginning of this movement called Zionism. Zion's one of the names for Jerusalem. So late 1800s, all these Jews, they had intended to settle in in Europe and stay there. But because of anti-Semitism, there started to become this growing sense, maybe we need to, to get a land of our own. It took several generations for it to happen. But this is the source of it. Now, in 1917, so you fast forward back, World War I is now finished, and um, uh, the Jews, is World War, what was the date that World War I ended? 15, was it 15 to 18? 14 to 18. 14 to 18? Okay, so it's either finished or coming to the tail end of it. And um, in 1917, the Jews were successful in gaining Britain's endorsement, and I'm going to write this on the board because you've probably all heard of it. I mean, I know what it is. What was called the Balfour Declaration. Does that ring a bell? So this is, I think, 1917. Let me read a couple excerpts. It's just a very very short, it's like a a one-page letter. It's actually kind of sloppily written in some ways, but in the sense that it doesn't clarify a lot of stuff. But here are a couple of key statements out of the the Balfour Declaration by Britain, who now had control of the British mandate, Palestine. Quote, the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Think about how that would have fueled the hopes and dreams of the Jews in Europe that had been experiencing anti-Semitism. I'll read it again. The establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. This was written by uh, a politician, last name Balfour, 
in on a, November the 2nd, 1917. Now, here was the fatal flaw in the Balfour Declaration. It also affirmed, quote, nothing shall be done which shall prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-religious communities. Does that kind of sound 2015-ish? This tension uh, has been the dominant problem for 100 years in Palestine or Israel, if you will. We're going to set up a Jewish state, but we're not going to step on anybody else's toes. How do you do that? That's not possible. You set up a Jewish state, but everyone else you're going to get uh, full recognition as well. And this has been the tension, right? Pre-Israel, pre-state of Israel, and post. How do you accommodate a Jewish state? It's The state of Israel is the only Jewish state on earth actually constituted as a Jewish state. Well, there's a lot of non-Jews there, so what do you do with that? I'm not talking about religion. I'm talking about ethnicity because there's a lot of division among the Jews religiously. But this, nevertheless, was a, a rallying cry or a, a rallying summons of hope for the, the, the Jewish people living in, in, uh, in Palestine and in Europe at the time. So now we have 30-plus years of British rule. So we're talking 1917 right through to 1947 and just, just nudging into 1948. Uh, some of the pluses of 30 years of uh, British rule, solid administration, security, no more Bedouins hacking people apart on their trade routes. So there was security and stability. The negatives now were not fights between the Bedouins and other people. The the, the negatives were fights between Arabs living in this British mandate who had just you know meandered in however many generations earlier were living there peaceably and Jews who had also moved in peaceably. So now you have this tension. So think about it this way. These, these Jewish people, some of these Jewish people now that were getting into fights with their Arab neighbors had been living in uh, Palestine for... Upwards of 47 years, you know, a couple generations. And, of course, there's many more coming in. So pre-World War II then, as Jews start to sort of think, man, maybe we need a national homeland, they're experiencing anti-Semitism. Coming into the late 1920s, into the 1930s, we now have uh, a huge increase in anti-Semitism, notably because of the politics of the Nazis. Keep in mind, Hitler was in political power years before the start of World War II. And the Nazis had been a dominant political group for a long time as well. And they championed anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness. So they were starting, a lot of the German Jews were experiencing a lot of persecution under the budding policies of the Nazis and other surrounding nations that sort of maybe took a little softer view, but nevertheless harsh compared to what we would expect. And between 1931 and 1938, the population of Jews increases to about 400,000 people. And that's up, I think, within a seven-year period by about a quarter million. So that's you know, given the time period and the population of Europe and the world, that's a pretty substantial a number of people. 
And one of the things that the Jews do, which is very unique in, in history, especially modern history, is instead of moving in and like, taking over Toronto or uh, you know, outbalancing the native population of whatever, Nunavut, some place in Nunavut, they were just going to build our own cities and towns from scratch. So there's actually pictures in the early 1900s of clusters of Jews standing in this desert. And they're, they're all standing there like in, someone's speaking and they're all kind of standing in a row. And that's now Tel Aviv. So they basically build cities in the desert. And it's very, very uh, ingenious. They build towns and they're still doing it today. The, the whole, you know, the, uh, the whole um, kibbutz, the whole notion of a kibbutz, that's a transference of um, European socialism into Israel. And it's unprecedented, I think, in the known in in the the modern world. You just take a bunch of people, you move in, and you literally set up a town overnight. But that's what they started to do, and some of these grew into huge cities. Notably, they basically started to build so many towns in the plains of Sharon, all on the Mediterranean. The towns sort of started to link up. So the Jews now start to take on a greater and greater presence in Palestine, and because of that. When, when any ethnic group looks around and realizes there's more people that are unlike them than like them, it always, no matter where you are, even into the modern age, causes discomfort. Right? And we all know it. There's something in us, even if we're not prejudiced and we love other people groups, all of a sudden we're outnumbered and we didn't used to be. So this is a little weird. Like, what about my history, my territory, my tradition, my background? You know, my grandfather's fought for this country. And, you know, we start to use that kind of rhetoric or at least entertain those thoughts in our head. So there, there, be, there begins to uh, be a, uh, a series of fights back and forth between the Arabs and the Jews, including Arab, up, uh, Arab uprisings. I want to stress something we stressed earlier on. The Arabs at this point are not called, nor do they consider themselves Palestinian. They're just Arab peoples living in Palestine. There's no Palestine, per se, as a country. Therefore, there's no Palestinian. Just like the Jews living there didn't consider themselves Israelis because there was no Israel. There's Jews living in the British Mandate. There's Arabs living in the British Mandate. As the Arabs rise up, notably in the late 1930s, so think 1936 to 1938, the British decide, well, we've got to fix this problem. This has been going on for a while. And they come up with something called the Partition Plan. We'll just carve out a few areas for the Palestinians, or sorry, the Arabs, and we'll carve out some areas for the Jews. So we got the West Bank, we've got Gaza, Arabs, you can live there. So we have this Partition Plan, and nobody really likes it. I mean, the Jews don't like it, the Arabs don't like it. It doesn't really solve anything. So because of their inability to resolve the ethnic tensions between the Arabs and the Jews in the 1930s, the British decide to publish the what is known as the White Paper. This is published in 1939. Now here's what the White Paper essentially says. No more Jews are allowed to immigrate to Israel. That's how we're going to fix the problem. Well, the Jews start coming in illegally. And there's many stories of these derelict boats bringing in Jewish settlers from Europe, sinking, 
uh, you know, floundering, people getting killed and horrible conditions in the sea and whatnot. But nevertheless, the Jews just keep streaming in, especially as we're now getting into the beginning stages of World War II. And um, the, the Arabs take up arms and they start cutting up, attacking, tearing down Jews and Jewish settlements. And, and this is where it sort of becomes almost like Nehemiah again, because the Jews decide, okay, well, we're going to be a little more strategic about this. We're going to build at night and we're going to guard our villages during the day. We're going to build towers with gunmen on the top to guard our territory. We're going to build fast. They start building prefab houses. So instead of you know framing everything all up, or in the Middle East you'd be laying block, they start to uh, bring in pre, pre, prefabricated houses. Instead of just picking an area that works, they start to build in strategic military locations in order to protect themselves from, from attack. They found militias. This is a lot like Nehemiah when he was being uh, hounded by Sanballat, the, the Sumerian Jew. He would, you know, we, we, put, we put gunmen out, or not gunmen, but we would put soldiers out to protect. We need a man to stand in the wall in the gap. There's that gap, and we need a guy to stand in the gap on behalf of the land, you know, the famous Ezekiel text. So um, the Jews just keep coming, and uh, then we have all of the events of World War II. Now, for all the atrocities of World War II and all the senseless killing and the, the murder of six million Jews, setting that aside for a moment, strictly from a political perspective, it was all to their advantage. Because now, at the end of World War II, no thinking person, no, no European power who wanted any clout in the world scene could possibly... Uh, not give the Jews what they wanted, as much as they were able to do so, right? I mean, you just, you, you just, we just finished a war where six million Jews were killed. So anti-Semitism sort of ducks its head, not because people are somehow some people are morally sensitized, but because it's not politically savvy to be anti-Semitic post World War II. What happens then is the um, the, the, the Jews start to feel that the British mandate had turned them down. So now for the first time in several decades, they're not, they're not real friendly with the, the, the English because these are the people that had uh, written the white paper against them, hadn't uh, stood up against them. That, that's further exacerbated by the news of uh, six million of their countrymen murdered during World War II. And another aspect that works to the advantage of the Jews is all across Europe, European armies are going to war, and in those European armies are Jews, people of Jewish persuasion. There could be German, probably not German Jews, but there would be you know, Austrian Jews and uh, Russian Jews and English Jews and French Jews and on and on and on, right? So after World War II, you now have a number of 
Jews that are settling in Palestine that have military experience, some of them even as officers. So now they actually have the potential of organizing military aren't these are experienced soldiers not all but some now another key event this fledgling organization is formed the tail end of world war ii called the united nations organization we just call it the un but it was actually the uno like uno and uh the un um is formed and uh, I don't know all of the all of the ins and outs, but I'll give you a, sort of the, the Coles Notes version. Uh, Britain had hoped that somehow they could either abandon or pull out of the British mandate, or that maybe somehow the uh, you know the white papers would something like that would solve this problem that they were continually de trying to deal with in Palestine. And um, so they kind of came with their own agenda to the United, United Nations. And their plan to, uh, what, what it was, was they wanted affirmation, I believe it was, to put this partition plan back in place. And they actually set a date, 1947, they wanted to partition Israel into the, the Jewish section and the Arab section without creating a country for either. Well, the um, the Arab states of the world at the time are the dominant force opposed to that, and they're like making threats. You know, we will attack if you partition the British mandate. We're going to attack. Uh, nevertheless, things sort of go in a direction through a series of events that people don't expect, and the UN decides, you know what, we're just going to go for it. We're going to declare a state for Israel. So on. May the 14th, 1948, the state of Israel is declared a new country. And this shocks the world, essentially. Like, who would have seen this coming? It actually, I think, in some ways shocks the Jews that their A plan didn't work. This was like the A++++++ plan that was handed to them. So the state of Israel, as we now call it, that's the official name of the country, the state of Israel, is officially formed in 1948. David Ben-Gurion becomes, or, or had been, the, provision, the head of the provisional government, and he becomes the first prime minister. So the way Israel is governed even up till today, there's a president, he's more like the ceremonial figurative guy, and there's a prime minister. And they have a parliament, much like we do, it's called the Knesset, and the Knesset is uh, 120 MPs under the Prime Minister. So David Ben-Gurion becomes the, he the head of government. And from, from here forward, even from secularized, basically you have sort of like a modern-day miracle. Everything, literally everything was against the possibility of this state being formed and surviving. This is like a, a baby born like four months premature. Like you just don't survive, sorry. And uh, here are some of the, the, the things that took place. First of all, they move incredibly quickly to stabilize their government. Think about this. 
you know, maybe even today, or let's say a, a re, uh, Quebec breaks away from Canada. Well, there's there's Canadian soldiers that live in Quebec, so they just change the name, right? You got an army. Uh, you already have like mayors and uh, uh, MPs and MPPs, and I mean, you have highways and roads and hospitals and all that. You just sort of change the name, and you have to do some reorganization, print your own money, but. Like it'd be like all of us just walking into some abandoned area of northern Ontario and setting up a country, and then like within weeks being attacked by five historic nations and surviving it. Like it's unbelievable. So they they're able to form a government very quickly. Now the reason there's several reasons why this is, is shocking. First of all, that Israel at its narrowest is 15 kilometers wide. That's like from the river to Old Castle. Well, all you got to do is drive a bunch of tanks and you split the country in half. Very difficult to defend a country that's 15 kilometers wide at its narrowest point, near Tel Aviv. So that's against them. Um, they have mass immigration to deal with. How do you, how do you process mass immigration when you don't have like you've had a government for whatever, a few days or a few weeks. You know, how do you set these people up, feed them, get them into houses? So they have that to deal with. They have geographical vulnerability. Um, many areas are still unsettled, unruly. You have cultural diversity. You have Arabs and Jews that are now fighting with each other. And you have war. We're going to talk about the War of Independence shortly but they immediately go to war with five arab enemy states um amazingly it, the state of israel experiences unprecedented economic and material stability it immediately has one of the highest gross national product ratings in the world it has one of the lowest inflation rates uh, right up until the 1970s. It has one of the highest levels of employment uh, in, its, in its first several uh, decades. Lifespan goes up. Uh, infant mortality goes down. Um, its business structure just kind of explodes. And it really is uh, nothing short of a miracle. The desert comes to life through settlement and irrigation. So areas no one even care less. You're looking at there's like you got desert. All of a sudden you got palm trees and date palms and farms and orchards and whatnot being built. And Israel also does a good job in taking care of its archaeological sites, and and did that pretty much from the get-go. From what I understand, did a good job in making sure that uh, um, you know things were things were taken care of. So um, right up until the present, the state of Israel still kind of shocks people, including its surrounding neighbors, because of its overall stability and strength. So even up to our day and age, we're talking about a country that's really not that old. What is it, 67 years old or something? And all the nations around them don't like it, but they're afraid to pick a fight with it because they know they can't win. They could attack all at once. They will not win against Israel. Uh, from what I've been told, Israel has 
from a military perspective, the fastest mobilized army in the in the world. Apparently, they can get their entire military apparatus to the front lines in 24 hours. Well, you just can't do that even in the modern world. That's almost unheard of. I mean, I'm not sure if we could get the Windsor Armories to, you know, the edge of town here in 24 hours. But they can mobilize their army. No, no offense, Sarge. I know you'll, I know you'll change that when you take charge. But uh, things just kind of take off and grow in Israel. So what we'll do is we're going to take a we're going to take a break, and then what we're going to do with the remaining time is we're going to walk through um, all the different wars and challenges to their sovereignty that Israel has experienced in the modern era, starting from 1948 onward. And again, just kind of miracle after miracle after miracle, we could say. Uh, and again, I'm not using the miracle necessarily even in a supernatural sense. I'm just saying like political miracles, minimum. Uh, war miracles. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're talking about like the modern conflicts with building settlements in the West Bank and that. Yeah. Okay, well let's take a break and then uh, we'll talk about some wars. So I want to talk about uh, Israel's wars and um, three sources. Wikipedia. This this material is from Wikipedia. Uh, a lot of the material tonight is from the book that I mentioned, uh, the History of Israel book, and then Dawn of the Promised Land. They're all good sources for you to find good information on. So uh, some of the wars that Israel has uh, has fought, or no, uh, they're not necessarily all wars in the sense that you know, you're off for months fighting someplace, but military conflicts, we could call them. So the first big one is what is now known as the War of Independence. And this took place in the fall of 1947 through to the summer of 1949. And this was uh, in, in reaction to the declaration of a new state, the state of Israel. Now, it was precipitated. It actually started before the state was formally forged. There was about a half a year of civil un unrest. And um, then this turned into uh, a, a regular, uh, full-fledged uh, war uh, after the state of Israel was declared. So the... Um, the, the country of uh, Egypt, uh, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Syria, uh, all attacked 
we, I gave you a little bit of information in this, the very first class. And um, Israel was able to defend itself and actually take territory in the south. They took over the Sinai Desert, if you recall. And later withdrew and gave, uh, gave it back to, to Egypt. But they actually were able to push right through to the Suez Canal. So this kind of shocked the uh, the Israelis. No, that's um, Egypt, part of Egypt. No, so my cool little map there. See the Red Sea down the bottom to the left. Saudi Arabia is to the right of the Red Sea. So the Sinai Peninsula, which is where the Jews wandered, Israel was able to take that um, in this war. And the 1949 armistice agreements were the ones that were signed to end the war officially. And at that point, lines were drawn in Israel differentiating Israel's borders from the West Bank, Gaza, and Egypt in the south. And this line is known as the Green Line. It's still used today. When Susie and I were in Israel, we were on a kibbutz, staying in a kibbutz for several days inside the Green Line. So we were technically in the West Bank. But it was a, a kibbutz that had been there for a long time called Kalia by the Red Sea. But actually, is, they call it the Green Line. It's, it's not green. It's just an imaginary line. But that's the Green Line. So that was uh, pretty significant and really, okay, now galvanized the nation even further. Then there's a series of uh, operations that are simply known as the reprisal operations. So these take place in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, Israel forms uh, a military called the IDF. Probably heard of it. And for its size, probably the most formidable military in the world. Obviously, the Americans would think of themselves as tougher, but uh, man for man, they're pretty tough. They, uh, they conscript, so there's mandatory military service. I think three years for guys, two years for girls. It's not gender specific. This is back, the IDF is, is still what it's known today, but this is back to the founding of the nation in 1948, the Israel Defense Forces. Um, started off as a series of militias and then formed into a, a full functioning army. Um, so in the 1950s and 60s, the, there was a lot of guerrilla warfare uh, in um, Israel. So we have uh, people coming in from Syria, Egypt, and the Jordan. And they are attacking Israeli civilians, Israeli military, sort of an uh, indiscriminate kind of thing. Um, and so Israel adopts this controversial policy, which you have all heard of, and that's like their... their um, you know, like blood for blood, you mess with us, we mess with you kind of mindset. So even today you have the uh, the Israelis, if you 
if a suicide bomber comes over from the West Bank, they'll go bulldoze that person's house. If, if they could, not they're going to be invading every sovereign nation, but if someone came across the Jordan from the country of Jordan and tried to invade and cause problems, they would they potentially would even send their spies in to try to take out the network or the family or whoever, wherever that person came from. So they, they carry out a series of reprisals. So this is 1950s and 60s. They're being attacked. Different people are coming in. And unlike Canada, like if I go blow someone's house up, they're not going to bulldoze my house on Mark Ave. But Israel has done that. And it actually, whether you like it ethically or not, it's very effective. It's an effective way of saying to people, you know, if you if you mess with us, we're going to put some serious consequences into place to your network of friends and family members. The, uh, the third war um, that's noted is called the Suez Crisis. This is 1956. Um, so the Suez Canal, again, put in place in 1869 has had different, um, it, it, it's officially, it officially was constructed as a canal that anybody should be able to use. Regardless, you can use it for military purposes, you can use it for civilian purposes, you just can't, I mean, you can't wage battles on it. But the U.S. does not have to ask permission to take their battleships from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. The Saudi Arabians don't have to ask permission to take their ships from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean. It's considered, an, in that sense, an international uh, waterway. But there's been times when different groups that have had governing shares in it have tried to use it for political purposes. So like on, a, on an extremely insignificant uh, level by comparison, we have the Ambassador Bridge. And Matty Maroon owns it. He can't just put up a closed sign. He's not allowed to do that. But he can sort of, he has to maintain it as an international crossing. But he can sort of play the political game, right? To uh, give, give everybody something to argue about, newspaper writers, writers to write, write things about. So um, in the 19, uh, in 1956, um, Britain, France, and Israel wage an attack on Egypt with the intention of taking over the canal. And um, the root of this was a decision by Egypt to what the article calls nationalize the Suez Canal. So basically they wanted to Egyptianize it, take it over. And um, so uh, the... Israeli forces are successful, and um, they're able to keep the canal open, and um, you know everything's sort of back to normal. So that was another big war that uh, the Israelis were involved in. The next one that's noted in this list is the Six-Day War, which lasted for how long, do you think? Six days. Okay, good. Yeah. So uh, this was fought between Israel and the Arab neighbors, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. And several other nations are noted, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq, Algeria, as having uh, thrown some soldiers into the mix. 
So this is where uh, the famous Golan Heights. So up in the, if this is the Israel from the side, and um, basically the shape of the country is something like this. Okay, so this is like the Dead Sea, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River. This is the Nijev down to the Elat, to the Red Sea, Jerusalem. So this area here, north of Galilee, is known as the Golan, or the Golan Heights, just because it's like elevated. Um, Damascus is up here. So Syria attacks, and the they they want to try to come down here and cut off uh, the the north from the south, and then basically take over, I guess. But the the Jews push them back. Almost, I think they actually get to the walls of Damascus, and then they retreat, and they basically say, "We're not giving you back the Golan Heights because you try to invade us. We're not giving it back to you. We're keeping it." as a buffer zone. So this has been the big dispute since 1967. So some are like, nope, we will not recognize the Golan Heights as part of Israel. Israel's like, it's part of Israel. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. So even when different presidents over the years, like the U.S. presidents, have tried to weigh in on peace, this is always a hot-button issue. Just give them back the Golan Heights. No, we're not going to do it. Now Jews have settled in the Golan Heights, and not that they couldn't move out, but they don't feel comfortable because if you give back the Golan Heights, you, I mean, you're almost right on top of the Sea of Galilee. Basically, if, you, if you're driving around the Sea of Galilee, you hit Tiberias on the west, about 50 minutes later, you're at the north at Capernaum, you can just drive right up into the Golan Heights. So you got Caesarea Philippi up there. you got um, Gamala... Uh, yeah, Gamala, that's the, the one of the famous last... We talked about that several weeks ago. That was one of the famous last stands. There was Masada in the south. Uh, no, Gamla. Gamla in the north, where the Jews fought against the Romans and lost. You still find like spearheads and stuff on the mountains, like archaeologists do. So that's in that area. So there's some significant spiritual sites, significant historical cultural sites there. That's the Golan Heights, and they don't want to give it back. So that's what happened in uh, in the 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 Six Day War. Um, an, another thing during that period of time, the uh, east side of Jerusalem, which had initially been ceded to the the Arabs, was taken over by Israel. So they took control of it. Um, the West Bank, they took control of that. And as I mentioned, the Sinai and the Gaza. Now, the West Bank, they it's been back and forth. Like The degree to which Israel is in it is kind of dependent on the degree to which the Arabs will leave them alone. So if the Arabs start to revolt or rise up, Israel sends more soldiers in and polices it more tightly. If there's peace, they sort of start to pull back. If there's uprisings, they move in, especially the West Bank. Gaza, not so much, because it's small and it's kind of up against the water. And 
it's not as much of a threat. But um, that's kind of how that works. Officially, the Palestinians have control of the West Bank, but they had more control before they uh, the war of 1967. And Israel has always, as I mentioned earlier, maintained the policy, if you send suicide bombers in, we're going to their house and blowing it up, or we're going to retaliate. So the, 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 just to kind of like, I guess, paint a picture for you in your head, if you were in Israel today and you'd lost your way, you wouldn't necessarily know when you're in Israel proper and when you're in the West Bank. Uh, in addition to that, if you're driving like in just the countryside of the West Bank, you're fine. You can drive with an Israeli car or you can have an Israeli flag on the top, whatever you want. And you're not going to have any issues, you know, 99.99% of the time. But if you stop at, like, in a town or a city in the West Bank, then it's sort of a mixed bag. Depends on who you are, what the political climate is of that particular month or year or era of time. And uh, it would depend whether you had a rental car from Israel, whether they perceived you to be an Israeli, or whether they you had a rental car from the Palestinian. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the Palestinian uh, state now, or, you know, what, it, it, there would just be a lot of factors. So when Susie and I were in Israel, like I said, we, I didn't really even think about this because I wasn't as knowledgeable about what was going on even then, but we were actually in a kibbutz that's technically in the West Bank, but it's Jewish. And the north of the de north part of the Dead Sea, you're you're in the West Bank. So we drove all the way from there up to Galilee, and the main road is all the way through the West Bank. And that was safe, but there's actually big signs that say because um, there's a checkpoint when you leave it to kind of go back into Israel proper. Um, and along the way, just to give you another visual image, I, I told you this before, but I don't know if I told you where it was. You know, we're driving on this road, whatever, 80, 90 kilometer an hour road. And uh, we're, we know we're in the West Bank traveling from the Dead Sea to Galilee. And you see like two, I mean, obviously they were probably 18 or 19. They look like they're about 15, 15 year old female IDF soldiers just trotting along the highway, like literally like out in Nowheresville. I don't know what they were doing. So obviously they felt secure enough to do that, but there's big signs that say if you're traveling from the south to the north, uh, you're not allowed to, I, I'm not sure if it says stop for gas. I think it might say stop for gas. You're not allowed to have any repair work done in your car in a Palestinian town if you're going to re-enter Israel for obvious purposes. Or they could plant bombs or whatever in your vehicle and then you drive it and you're, you're the person that reaps the ramifications of it. So there's things like that, and when you're driving into back into Israel, so you're coming up to picture the uh, the border booths here. So they're they're a little more open, but there's border booths, and there's a guy in the center with some sort of an assault rifle, and he's pointing it like right at your head as you're driving by. You know, <laughs> like it's not like he's holding it like this. He's like as you're coming toward him, right? <laughs> so <laughs> hope he doesn't fall asleep and you know pull the trigger. So the Israel's quasi-control, or at least authority, over the West Bank stems from this 1967 war. Then uh, 1967 to 1970, um, next war on the list, the 
war of attrition. So, quote, it's a limited war fought between the Israeli military and the forces of the Egyptian Republic, the USSR, Jordan, Syria, and their famous buddies, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. From 67 to 70, it was initiated by the Egyptians as a way of recapturing the Sinai from the Israelis, who had been in control of the territory since the mid 1967-60 war. The hostilities ended with a ceasefire signed between the countries in 1970, with frontiers remaining in the same place as when the war began. So that was mostly, you know, we want our turf back and uh, we're going to fight for it. So that's kind of the whole, the, the Sinai desert experience. Again, more as a buffer zone, not because there's really any value to it per se. I don't think there's any settlements in the Sinai that I know of. Maybe in the peripheries there might be some, but it's it's more or less, we just need a little bit of a buffer zone here. The next one is the Yom Kippur War. So this is 1973, uh, my year. And uh, this is fought for uh, just a couple weeks in 1973 by a coalition of Arab states led by Egypt and Syria against Israel as a way of recapturing parts of the territories they lost to Israel back in the 1967 war. It's a surprise attack. So you may have heard of this where they attack on the Day of Atonement. The Jews are celebrating this. They're sort of caught off guard and they decide to attack on a, re on a major religious holiday. But... Um, as you can imagine, um, Israel, I mean, Israel always wins, otherwise it wouldn't be Israel. So just to spill the beans, they always win. So they win, and um, basically there's not a lot of change in, in the boundaries between the different uh, countries that are involved in it. Then we have the Palestinian insurgency in South Lebanon. 1971 to 1982. So the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, you remember we talked about that a little bit? So that is like Yasser Arafat's organization. And basically that's like a, a, a guerrilla political organization that rises up and um, initiates terrorist attacks against Israel to... Uh, win land for basically to get Israel out and to take over for the Arabs. Now, keep in mind, um, you know, I say this carefully, but it, it's kind of true. A terrorist, by definition, is the person who's not in charge trying to become in charge. So from, from, but from their perspective, they think they're right. If it was the other way around, it'd be the Israelis that were called the terrorists and the PLO that would be the, the good guys. So take, put, a, put aside our pro-Israel stance because of scripture. From a political perspective, it's a people group that considers themselves oppressed trying to take back land from the Israelis, right? And the, 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 um, the tactics they use are uncivil, but in part that's because they don't have a standing military, they don't have a government, yada, 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 yada. So that's why the PLO especially in its early days, is sort of despised. But later on, various people who are not as pro-Israel are like, well, they're legitimate. But people that had always seen them as terrorists, like, how can you, how can you make a terrorist organization legitimate? But there's other examples of that in Ireland or even in 
Palestinian territories today where groups that are governing were actually founded sort of as what you might call terrorist organizations. So the Palestinians rise up and um, uh, they relocate to South Lebanon. So where's Lebanon in relation to Israel? North. Just right at the top. So when you get up past Galilee into like the area of ancient Dan, you're just a stone's throw from southern Lebanon. So the PLO is not doing so well in Israel, so they scoot up to Lebanon. By the way, they get into a lot of fights and skirmishes with the Lebanese, and some of them like them and some of them don't, but Arafat and his boys are hanging out up there because it's safer for them. Um, and in 1978, Israel launches a military operation. It invades southern Lebanon and um, basically sets up military checkpoints and uh, maintains control of southern Lebanon for several years. Why? Kind of a buffer zone. They're not building settlements. But basically, the guy that's trying to kill us, you're letting him hang out in your, your backyard, so we're going to take over the bottom half of your backyard as a buffer zone so he doesn't come into our house kind of a thing. So that, that takes place in 72, 71 to 82. Now, next one is in, in 1982 is what is called the, the Lebanon War. So I'll just read from this again. Um, June 6, 1982, the Israeli Defense Forces invade southern Lebanon to expel the PLO from the territory. The government of Israel orders the invasion as a response to the, assa the assassination attempt against Israel's ambassador to the United Kingdom, Shlomo Argov, by the Abu Nidal organization and due to the constant terror attacks on northern Israel by the Palestinian guerrilla organizations which resided in Lebanon. And the 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 end the end result is that they create this band of land, this security zone, so that they can hinder the um, um, PLO and other like-minded groups from coming down into northern Israel or you know lobbing missiles into northern Israeli towns. And that stays in place for a long, long time. So that was another big offensive. Um, by the way, in, in several of these wars, the future prime ministers, defense, senior defense forces, ministers of Israel are soldiers. Um, I don't know when the last time would be that we had a prime minister who previously had been a soldier. I don't, I don't, maybe you could tell me that. But when was the last time we had a prime minister who actually was a soldier or maybe even a minister of defense that had ever been a soldier? I think it would probably change your mindset ever so slightly if you had gone to war and battled the enemy. In Israel today, one of the reasons I think, this is just my opinion, why they are militarily strong is all their top politicians are former soldiers. And in part, that's because there's conscription in the country. Now, when these guys, like when Ariel Sharon was, uh, was a prime minister, he, you know, his his... Um, opponents would often point back to different skirmishes he might have led when he was whatever, a captain or whatever rank he was at. 
where he overstepped his bounds or mistreated the population, the civilian population. So they're always looking for dirt, right? And there may be some truth to that. It may just be, you know, political bombs being thrown back and forth. But the the double-edged sword is you got middle military experience, but your record is always open to uh, public critique. In our country, you probably couldn't be a military guy for very long and be in politics because there'd be something you'd some call you'd made that would be considered unjust by the Canadian public that tends to be more on the passive liberal side of things. Then we have uh, another conflict from 1982 to 2000. And this is the South Lebanon conflict. So essentially, there's an 18-year war, guerrilla war back and forth between the soldiers from the IDF that are inhabiting Southern Lebanon and the uh, various Lebanese pro-Arab, pro-Palestinian groups. Have you ever heard heard or seen this word? Intifada. What does it mean? Rising up. So there's a couple times when the uprising of Arabs or Palestinians was so great that it's known in history as the Intifada. There's there's the first one and there's the second one. There's been several little ones, but there's two periods of time where Israel had to really up its game militarily because there were these huge uprisings among the Arab populace. So the first Intifada, 87 to 1993. The second one, 2000 to 2005. Now, um, both of them basically are, you've seen the pictures, kids throwing the stones, um, suicide bombings, cars being driven through checkpoints and exploded, Israel retaliating, houses being bombed, uh, Arabs carrying children, family members on stretchers, screaming out for justice, the green headbands, the Arabic writing. Uh, these are the two intifadas or uprisings where large sections, most of the male populace of the residents of the West Bank or Gaza rose up against the Israelis and it's basically like battling it out now for several years in a row and then something political happens to sort of try to calm it, some peace treaty or peace agreement, but the root issues are never solved. No one's really ever satisfied. They sort of get tired of throwing stones and shooting back for several years in a row. So those are the two intifadas. If you go to, like I've been to uh, uh, Budimir Central Library, look through all their their sections on uh, Israel and Israeli conflicts, especially the downtown library. Like there, there are tons of books on intifadas. That's like huge. And I remember when I was in Bible college, I was doing a church planting project on Israel for a missions class. And I remember like you, there's more books than that, probably than in, in any one of these other topics we've talked about. Because that's like the hot button thing, right? In in our lifetimes, we we've seen the pictures of the the stone throwing Arabs and the uh, Israeli soldiers duking it out. So that's kind of like a they weren't really full scale wars, but they were major uprisings against Israel and and they made the news. Then in 2006, in the summer, we have the Lebanon War. So. Uh, Two Israeli soldiers are abducted by Hezbollah. Hezbollah is like the um, 
the terrorist organization that dominates Lebanon. So Hezbollah abducts, and um, there's a series of uh, confrontations between the IDF and Hezbollah. So Hezbollah is not like the Lebanese army, but it's a militia that is headquartered out of Lebanon and does raids and causes problems in Israel. And the United Nations eventually steps in and sort of uh, brokers a peace deal between uh, the groups. Then the Gaza War, again, just coming right up, right up almost to the present, December 2008 to 2009. Um, this is the battle between Israel and Hamas. So Hamas is like the terrorist organization now that's ruling the Palestinians. And it's basically daily, several missiles being lobbed into Israeli towns or settlements. Uh, you know, the tunnels, um, tunnels between Gaza and Egypt in the south, or yeah, Gaza and Egypt in the south, getting aid from the Russians and other sympathizers. Um, all kinds of events take place, and there's like an explosion and of, of, of anger, and Israel, uh, in this particular, sa particular situation, resorts to... Um, uh, airstrikes, um, talks about the fact there were military and civilian targets. They targeted police stations, government buildings, and then uh, coming into 2009, declared the, an official stop. Now, here's where, you know, here's where we, we hear a lot of opinions, right? So we hear, oh, the big, strong Israelis barged into some houses in Gaza Strip and some poor ladies there with their kids and they're scared and someone else gets a bomb dropped in the wrong spot and blows up their house. And, and the media presents it as there's a civilized, strong country just picking on the Palestinians. Now, there's no way on earth any thinking person could conclude that Israel is always innocent. They're not being led by Christ. They're secularists. A lot of them are atheists. Uh, we believe that there will become a time, there will come a time when they turn on mass to Jesus the Messiah. But in the meanwhile, they're making the mistakes that every other secular nation makes. However, it's not as simple as there's the poor little peon Palestinians that are being picked on by the IDF tough guys. There's 4,000 years of history here you kind of have to have some knowledge of and at least the last century of conflicts and issues that are going back and forth that have aided in um, you know, all this rhetoric. And I was thinking to myself, it almost should be like mandatory, you'll laugh at this, but it should be mandatory for Barack Obama and every world leader to take my Israel course before they're allowed to serve in those high offices. Because they just it's almost like they enter it clueless. They know about like the last twenty or thirty years of rhetoric from the news, but they, they don't it's not couched in history. And you've heard this statement before that if you're ignorant of history you're bound to repeat its mistakes. There's a whole historical backdrop to this, which really I think helps us to see things in a little different light.
again, even if you're not Christian, don't hold to a future for Israel, there, there's more, there's, it's, it's very simplistic just to say to Netanyahu, you're a bad guy, we don't, we're going to protest, this is you know, a week or so ago, we're going to protest you speaking in front of the, uh, what is it, the Congress or Senate, whatever they have, because you know, you're basically a terrorist and you kill, ba- there's a, I'm sorry, but that, that's, that's a simpleton's response to a historic problem. So these are the kinds of things that uh, you know, play a role in people's, it's the ignorance that plays a role in a lot of people's uh, deductions. Yeah. And he says, um, don't you feel uh, sorry for that? He says, oh, I got six more kids. Mm. Yeah. That's the kind of mentality yeah. they got. Yeah. Let's be careful not to say they. Some. Yeah. You know, we don't just paint it with a broad brush and be guilty of the opposite of anti-Semitism. But if you go to if you go into the West Bank or the Gaza Strip today, you will see um, usually there's painted like amateur level memorials of suicide bombers. You get your big mural of you on the wall. You're sort of idolized for defending your people. Uh, I read about a, uh, there are there are Arab Muslims in the IDF who are Israeli citizens. Uh, and I, I just read briefly about, a. I think he was like a lieutenant colonel, so a pretty high ranking officer. He says, I'm a Sunni Muslim, I'm an Arab, but I'm a proud Israeli, and I think I need to fight for my country just like everyone else. So it's not a, it's not a religious thing for him. But he said for the fir- first 14 y- years of his life, he was always told that uh, the Jews took the land from us. If you're told that over and over and over again, and you tell it to your kids and they tell it to their kids... That's what people in Canada think. The Jews just moved in and took it from the Palestinians. Well, you now know that's not true. That's not how things came about. There was no such thing as a Palestinian. There was no one people group that dominated. It was, it, for 2,000 years, it was an outside power controlling a piece of land. Um and generally, the, inhabit- the, the, the native inhabitants, native meaning people that have been there for at least a few generations, were generally being abused by someone. Uh, but who are the original, original inhabitants of Palestine? Well, there's about 55 answers to that question. Depends on what century you're in. Uh, it just happened to be that there's a people group without a home that eventually have a home carved out of a non-country for them. And yeah, maybe it's not handled properly, but it creates a whole uh, explosive set of circumstances for the people. So you, you do feel sorry for, from a human perspective, you do feel sorry for people that feel that they're disenfranchised, or there's no home, but it's it's not just one group took it from another group. It's very simplistic. I mean, even the, even the land that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, from the time that Rothschild was buying acreage for Jews, Jews weren't taking land from anybody. They were buying it. They were settling in unoccupied territories with the permission of whoever they needed to get permission from. 
uh, even today, I know there's some this uh, there's probably been some violations with building in the West Bank, but from the Jewish perspective, you also need to understand that the West Bank is not a country. Uh, they still patrol it. They took it in they took it in war against a nation that was trying to take it from them, notably the Jordan. Um, and they're trying to control it for security purposes. And they're when they do build settlements, they generally build them. Uh, for security purposes in areas that are not being used. But like you said, Jack, as soon as someone builds on land that no one otherwise cares about, then all of a sudden everybody cares about it. It's like, I remember when my kids were little, we, have bo- we threw a lot of this stuff out, thank God, but we had boxes and boxes of toys. And you got the big toy box, right? And the kids root through the toy box, all the stuff on the top that gets played with. There could be something at the bottom of the toy box that's been there for months, but, you know, little Casey goes up and grabs it, and little Josiah suddenly wants it. Well, why do you want it now? You didn't want it for six months, and all of a sudden the skirmish breaks out. So in some senses, I know that's a simplistic uh, illustration, but in some senses there's, there is, e- even in world history, there's lands that nobody cares about until someone pitches a tent on it, and they're all of a sudden somebody, oh, that's ours. Right? So we have the, the Gaza War. Um, by the way, I think it was, uh, you could Google this. I think it was, after which war did they start to build? I think it was after the second intifada they started building the, the wall. It can't be more than 10 years ago. Uh, so they, they the, um, you know, people who remember like East Germany and West Germany, the wall. Yeah, the Berlin Wall. I went to Berlin, I think the year after it was taken down, there were still some sections. I actually brought back some little pieces of it. Each of them was stamped with the official stamp, and you had to pay money for them, of course. But um, the uh, the Berlin Wall partitioned Berlin, right? The communists on the one side. And uh, people like to think of the wall in Israel as akin to that. That it's not even the only thing that's the same is it's a wall. It's it's a completely different set of circumstances and for a completely different reason. They're building a security wall to stop suicide bombers from blowing up civilians. And it is true that at times, if you draw a line on the, the the official line on a map as to where the Gaza Strip starts and stops and Israel starts and stops, that the wall zigzags. Sometimes it goes into the Gaza, sometimes into Israel and back. But the reason for that is it's, it's fine to look at a flat map and draw a line, but when you're building a wall and you come up to like, whatever, a straight up cliff, you got to go around it one way or the other. Well, as soon as you do that, oh, you're encroaching on someone's territory. Uh, but if you look at it, it's more or less even Steven at the end of the day. It's a give and take kind of thing. But the reason why you got an 18 or 20 foot wall there is because you're trying to trying to secure your people. So I live in a neighborhood. Well, if if my you know neighbor's dog keeps coming and pooping on my lawn, and my neighbor doesn't want to do, I'm going to build a fence. If my neighbor's kid keeps hopping the fence and swimming in my pool, I'm going to build a taller fence. If my neighbor's kid keeps coming and trying to knife my kids. And I build a big wall. I'm, I'm, spo- I'm accused of being a communist East German. Like it's not even remotely the same situation. And if you don't like the people, why would you want to see them? But the the problem is is that 
because Palestine is composed of disadvantaged people who feel put off, they have not developed an economy like Israel. So historically, most Palestinians worked for Israelis. Well, now that the wall's up, literally thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people who otherwise would just jump in their car and drive to you know, their employer in Israel can't do it now. So the, 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 the biggest problem with the wall for the Palestinian is that those that historically worked in Israel proper can't get there or you know, it takes them three hours to get to work. So you can understand if a guy's not part of the intifada or isn't lobbing bombs, he feels put off because I've been getting along with my Israeli boss for decades and now I can't go to work. So then that creates resentment and problems and all that kind of stuff. So those are those are legitimate needs, but it's sort of like a greater evil, lesser evil thing, I think, um, and that Israel has had to take some extreme measures because it's in, ex in extreme circumstances. So if that helps you to understand that. The latest uh, recorded military offensive is called Operation Protective Edge, July 2014, where... And I'll just read here too. Military offensive on the Gaza Strip was taken as a response to the collapse of an American-sponsored peace talks. Attempts by rival Palestinian factions to form a coalition government. The kidnapping and murder of three Israeli teenagers. The subsequent kidnapping and murder of a Palestinian teenager. And increased rocket attacks on Israel by Hamas militants. By the way, when you say in increased, it's increased. I don't know if you know about this, but Hamas lobs missiles into Israel every day not once a month not once a year like every single day 365 and a quarter days a year missiles are being dropped not all of them hit their target but I mean very few do but it's just a constant psychological war if nothing else against the Israelis so last summer there was that military opera offensive you probably read it, the whole t that's where they un unearthed all the tunnels and and that kind of thing and um you know th that's kind of the, the state of uh mind so israel today um officially secular uh pluralistic religiously you have ultra orthodox jews orthodox jews this is like the next down conservative jews Reformed Jews, which are like liberals. Secular Jews, you can add. Yeah, mess Messianic Jews are like Jewish Christians, right? So you have Christian Jews or Messianic Jews from different denominations. You have um, Orthodox Christians who are Jewish ethnically. Um, you have Christian non-Jewish people living in Israel. You have Arabs, you have Christian Arabs. You have Druze, which are like a sect of Islam. You have Sunni, Shiite. Not so much Shiites in Israel, but hypothetically you could. So you have atheists, agnostics, secularists. Most of like the high-end politicians are secularists. Like they wouldn't be people of Christian faith or Jewish faith. They may appreciate some of the history to their Sabbath celebrations or whatnot, but they don't, like Netanyahu wouldn't be like a 
devout Jew, per se. And um, a country that is technologically advanced and agriculturally advanced. Um, you have a country that's highly militarized. You have a country that's a true democracy. So it is a true democracy. There's, there's freedom of religion, freedom of uh, choice on pretty much you know any issue that's not illegal. Um, you would have all the social issues in Israel today. You would have you know gay pride rallies in Tel Aviv. You would have a large homosexual population. You would have uh, legalized abortion. Um, you know all those things that come with a secularized environment. Um, you know access to alcohol, uh, drunkenness, um, uh, drugs. You know whatever else. So kind of like Canada or a Western country in that respect, but unlike our country, very, um, you know, always, always susceptible. I don't, I don't know if I want to use the word vulnerable because they're pretty strong, but always susceptible to attack. And the kind of attack, no matter what you do, you really can never stop it. You can build walls, but people still blow themselves up in bus stations. So that's sort of the, the, the ethos of the country today, but the Jews as a whole are delighted to have their own homeland and um, you know, be able to, to live there and enjoy a, a relative peace. Now keep in mind, 8.3 million people in Israel, not all Jewish in origin, but Israelis, um, far more Jews outside of Israel than in Israel especially in the U.S. So um, that sort of brings us to the end of like the major events of like modern Israeli history. So what I wanted to do, we, I think we've got about 15, 20 minutes here. Well, maybe 10 minutes. Um, I wonder if a few of you would be willing just to encourage the class and inform me. Share one highlight, something you learned or relearned over the course of the last nine weeks that kind of stuck with you. Something that you, you think will be helpful for your study of scripture or your understanding of eschatological events or the current political religious scene in Israel. So I'll just open it up, um, tr you know, try to keep it brief, so we'll give a few people to share. But what's one thing that stood out to you? I hope you learned more than one thing. But what's one thing that stood out to you in this course that you, you sort of found helpful or informative? Okay. Okay, good. Hasmonians and... There still are. Certain branches of Judaism are still identifying Messianic candidates now. So. One thing I think that's amazing with all these wars, never be the hand of God that Israel wasn't wiped off the map. Mm. Like even back historically? 1948, when you had five mm. Arab countries. 
Yeah. It's actually amazing, too, that there's even an ethnic group anymore called Jews, given all this. I mean, there's plenty of ethnic groups that have gone extinct. Have you ever met a Hittite? But uh, somehow the Jews have, have maintained, uh, I mean, they've been mixed in with other groups, admittedly, but there's still an ethnic group called the Jews on planet Earth after thousands of years. Nancy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually saw, I don't know if it was National Geographic, but um, this is the name for mass returns. They're called Elias, and it's like, come on in, like emigrate to Israel. And those are still being advertised in mass publications. I just actually just saw one a couple of weeks ago. I, I think it might have been National Geographic, but it could have been the newspaper. Um, it's a sense of national pride, of um, uh, you know, desire to overcome. It's set against the backdrop of a history of perceived oppression and defeat and humiliation. And uh, there's religious undertones or overtones to it, but there is a call to even secular Jews come back because this is this is where you belong. Yeah. Um, I'm just pausing because you made a comment that I've just never heard. I've never heard anybody ask for money because no, most. Well, I've been asked for money. Oh, have you? There are oh. Organizations in this town asking for really? Money okay. I've never heard that before. Is that right? Yeah. Because Jewish people in general are are relatively successful in politics and business and education and. Uh, they have a lot of financiers among themselves. I, I think that they're, they're definitely, in my understanding of Scripture, uh, does appear to be a promise by God to give that land, however you draw the borders, to that people group. Um, so in that sense, macro, my answer is yes. Micro, we need to be careful. We don't need to support every initiative, every means every mechanism and every person because they are not a people that have surrendered to Christ and uh, you know the means the mechanisms the people behind that may be sinning they may have wrong motives um, you know they may be rip-off artists we, we don't as Christians I believe that we are called to support the Jewish people that doesn't mean that I have to support the Knesset and all the decisions that they make they're going to make decisions that are wrong just like our government will uh, so being pro-Jewish from a biblical perspective does not necessarily mean you got to be pro all Jewish politics. Is that the scene of the final action? Yeah. Once they all get back there and then, wow, it's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we should get them there fast? Yeah, but, but keep in mind, <laughs> but keep in mind, keep in mind, Nancy, I hope you've learned something in this course. They might be out again and back and out again and back. They've been in and out. It's not just they were there and they were gone another back the first time. Wow, they're all back. Like, no, they've been in and out under different things. We always need to live our lives as if Jesus is coming back any moment, but we don't know 
how much longer the world is going to be here. The early Christians thought with all of their hearts it was going to be first century. Well, who would have ever thought in the first century you're waiting at least another 2,000 years? I can guarantee you there wouldn't be a person on earth that would have thought that that believed in the true God. So as much as all of us on a heart level, I even react to my own statement, but I'm just telling you, it is possible that we got 10,000 more years ahead of us. We don't know. So how many more kingdoms are going to rise and fall in the Middle East until the, the true end? I, we don't know. And there is, there, is no, there is no biblical proof text that you could offer me that says, no, it's going to happen in our lifetime. We should live as if that is the case. But let's not, let's not be foolish and just sort of think about our little epoch of time and, oh, the world is getting eviler. Yeah, I'm pretty sure if you ask someone living in um, Rome in the third century, they would have had a lot more reasons to think the world is evil than this country, this particular generation. Uh, you know, do you think when they were sewing Christians up in animal skin bags and throwing them in the arena, that like... That's probably a little bit worse than the gay rights movement. Um, so we need to be careful not to be ignorant people and just, you know, we're so aware of what happened in the last five years in our culture that we read that into every other world event. We just don't know. I mean, I, I'd be quite surprised if Jesus isn't coming back quite soon, but... We just don't know is all I'm saying. So again, with the Jews, this the 1948 event might be the actual, the, the final time and, and the stage is set, but I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember when the majority of evangelicals thought the USSR was, um, you know, the beast or part of, and then, oh, the USSR crumbles. Now what are we going to do? North Korea, right? So we, we're, we've been around long enough to know we need to be a little bit careful about... I remember getting the tract at Westside Bible Chapel that the world was ending in 1986. White tract, uh, red or orange letters, I remember receiving one. It was ending in 1986. And that, I, I can tell you that tract's not in publication today. <laughs> no, so, yeah. 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 He's a chiropractor in Tel Aviv. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I want to hear from a couple more of you just before we leave. So, Jill. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 I wonder what was going on in Windsor at the time. <laughs> a lot of trees, yeah. Yeah, Indians, yeah. Okay, anyone else? One more. Glenn? So Babylonians. Oh, the Persians, yeah. Yeah, Very under Darius. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, such a long time goes by. I mean, think about 70 years ago. What does 70 years put us to, um, what would that be? Help me here. 1945? Yeah, 1945. So... Like, does anybody here really care what was going on before 1945? So if, you, if your family came from Ireland in 1945 or Poland in 1945, you probably don't have a lot of affinity to Ireland or Poland in 2015. So that's, that's a commensurate amount of time that they were in Babylon. So it was to them, yeah, we're, you know, we're from this place called Israel. We've never seen it, we've never been there, who cares? So I think that, and then they're comfortable, they're, you know, quote unquote, their kids are playing hockey in the local team, and, you know, they're sort of set up, and they know where to buy groceries. So th I think that's a huge factor, too. They just lost sight of their spiritual identity. And that's why you have the Chronicler, for instance, rewriting their history. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, if they're not written pre and post ex exile, are redundant. But the Chronicler retells their history to these people that are essentially ignorant of it post-exile, which helps to set in their mind the spiritual notion that we need to go back, most of which don't, of course. What, 20, 30,000? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um... Well, um, I'd have to I'd have to look that up, but there's so much inter intermarriage and intermixing. So typically, you think Middle Eastern today, you think Arab, but Arab is actually more like the Southern Middle Eastern tribes that weren't in. So the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Canaanites, the Jews—they're not Arab people. So if you go into like northern Iraq, the northern Iraqis would say they are like the original Babylonians. The southern Iraqis are like the Arabs that came up into the land. So those northern Iraqis could have Jewish ancestry too. Because before they became Muslims, or, or, or sorry, before the southern Iraqis became Muslims, they, most of them were Christian. And the Northerners stayed Christian. That's why they're still oppressed by the Southerners. Um, the Canaanites could have mixed in with uh, Arabs, uh, Egyptians, which were not originally Arabs, from what I understand. Um, Turks. I mean, that whole area, you got people just back and forth, back and forth, intermingling and intermixing. You're, you're, you're not going to go into a land like Canaan and literally wipe out every last person. There's always going to be pockets of people that continue to live there, intermingle with the, the the culture. Some of the Canaanites married into the Jews. Some of the, uh, um, just like the, the Samaritans are a combination of uh, people, groups who were brought in by the Assyrians and Jewish inhabitants. There's pro there probably were Canaanite groups that stayed in the land that just intermingled into the bloodlines. I mean, look at Jews today. You have black Jews, you have white Jews, you have olive-colored skinned Jews. So you have a lot of ethnic diversity even there. Yeah. Okay, well, um, have a good evening. Thanks for coming. And uh, we're not going to be teaching 242 for a few weeks, but I, I am probably going to do one more 
six-week course um, before the summer, and I'm I'm going to do it on um, a topic, the topic of how to study your Bible. So we're going to, it's a, in fancy terms, we call it hermeneutics, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation. So I'm going to do, a, I've taught this several times in the church. I'm going to do like a truncated refresher on that. Basic keys and cues for studying your Bible. And I will even teach you how to do a word study out of the original Greek, if you come. If you bring me coffee. So, okay. I might throw some other things in there if you're good. So, okay. So we'll take a few weeks off, and then after the March break, we'll announce when that will be taught and whatnot.